Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's podcast on Leadership with Scott Miller, now the world's largest weekly podcast that airs twice weekly on Tuesdays and on Fridays, where I had this enormous privilege five years in, nearly 300 episodes, to have these remarkable conversations with people that have dedicated their lives to a theme of leadership. It may be with a marketing angle or a culture angle or a financial angle, but each week we have these interviews where we learn a lot about how to improve our own leadership competency, whether it be perhaps as a formal leader inside an organization or maybe informally inside your home. And today I'm honored to be interviewing the literary titan. This is a gentleman who's dedicated his entire career to understanding the nuances of business and leadership and culture, a multi-decade contributor at the Wall Street Journal um, organization. His newest book is Tomorrow's Capitalist. We'll talk more about that in a moment. His name is Alan Murray, and he's joining us today. Alan, welcome to On Leadership. Thanks, Scott. Great to be with you. Thank Alan, you for so, having me. so honored to have you here. I feel like I know you, not just because I have followed your career at the Wall Street Journal for three decades that I read six days a week without, um, without interruption. In fact, Utah is one of the few states that no longer prints the Wall Street Journal, so you have to have it ordered by mail. So it comes to me every two days late, but I'm such a fan of the, of the journal that I keep reading it. Uh, but I know you as one of the guest moderators for the World Business Forum. For many years, you were invited to interview some of the biggest leadership names in the business. And so I saw you way back in the bowels of the Radio City Music Hall. And what an honor today to have you on our set. Alan, would you maybe rewind your career a couple of decades? Take your time. I'd like you to reorient your journey professionally to all of our listeners and viewers so people have a context <laughs> for why you would have come to write this recent book, Tomorrow's Capitalist. Yeah, I'll, I'll try and do it. It's, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty old these days, Scott, so if I, if I take you through my whole career, we'll take up too much time, but I'll try and give you an abbreviated version. Um, I have been a journalist since I was nine years old. I walked up and down my neighborhood and took notes on people who had lost their pets or their grandparents were uh, visiting. And I wrote up a little one sheet that I sold in the neighborhood for a nickel. So I've been in this business since I was too young to even think about it uh, rationally. Uh, but when I came out of college, it was the 1970s, inflation was roaring, the economy wasn't doing well. And I thought, if I want to be a journalist who understands what's going on in the world, I better spend some time understanding, learning the economy and focusing on the intersection of business econ and uh, economics and society. Uh, and, and so that's where my career has focused. I was the first business editor of the Chattanooga Times before I went to the Wall Street Journal, ran the Washington Bureau there, was... Washington editor for CNBC for a while, uh, uh, ran uh, Wall Street Journal online, and then uh, switched over about eight years ago to Fortune, where I was first editor-in-chief, and I'm now CEO. And, and, and here's why I wrote the book. So that I just described to you about four decades right. of focusing on the intersection between business and society. And what happened to me over the course of the last 10 years was I was having all these conversations with CEOs. I'm, I'm privileged to be able to speak frequently to the people who run large corporations. And the way they were talking about their jobs was very different than it had been in the past. The way they spoke about 
uh, social responsibility, things they were trying to do on the climate, things they were trying to do to address inequality in the communities they operated. It's just a very different tone. And uh, uh, I started trying to figure out why is this happening? What's driving it? What are the reasons behind it? And ultimately, that's what led to the book. It was my effort to try and understand and then explain why the nature of leadership and the nature of the way leaders were looking at their responsibilities to society uh, had changed so dramatically over a pretty short period of time. You wrote the book, Alan, called Tomorrow's Capitalist. In fact, the tagline is my search for the soul of business. You've been, um, you've been both reporting on business and leading business for your entire career. You opened the book with a, a fairly riveting story about uh, an experience you had with Pope Francis in, a, in a, a conclave, maybe not a religious conclave, but a business conclave of CEOs. Talk about that story as it pertains to your search for the soul of sure. business. Yeah, so this uh, uh, the meeting you're talking about happened in, in uh, December of 2016. Uh, and I had been hearing this uh, change in the way that the people who ran large companies were talking about their responsibilities to society. And, and, and frankly, it was also paired with increasing signs of kind of a breakdown of the, of the political system, at least in in Western countries. In Europe, you had the Brexit vote, you know, where all the uh, leaders of society, the elites in society said, don't do Brexit, it would be a mistake, and people voted for it anyway. In the U.S. in 2016, you had this crazy election developing where, on the one hand, the Republican candidate, Donald Trump, was running against the kinds of stuff that Republicans usually supported, free trade, open trade, globalization. And on the other hand, uh, uh, a self-described socialist, Bernie Sanders, came very, very close to knocking off Hillary Clinton for the Democratic nomination. And so a lot of business leaders were saying, hey, you know, we can't really count on the government uh, to deal with some of these big global social problems. And if we want to survive in the long term, we have to get involved. And so what we did at, at the same time, by the way, the Pope was interested in having a conversation with business leaders. He understood the power that these organizations had. And so we took about 100 CEOs from many of the world's largest companies to Rome. We spent a day with them talking about how they could use their profit-making superpowers to address some of the big problems the Pope was focused on, whether it's climate or uh, health care shortages in the uh, underdeveloped world, uh, water, came up with some really uh, clever recommendations, actually some interesting things actually grew out of that conference, had them translated, sent them to the Pope. And then the next day, all the CEOs went to meet with him. And it was a very moving experience. I'm not sure before that moment he had fully recognized the power that these big companies have to address the problems that he was most concerned about. So it was a, a very moving uh, uh, event. And all the CEOs at the end of it said to us uh, at Fortune that we should continue these conversations. They were really important conversations. We have to keep them going. And so we created something called the CEO Initiative that's been going ever since, has about 200 CEOs uh, involved, and it's a series of conversations sharing best practices and ideas about how to maximize your impact on society 
at the same time you're maximizing profit. Alan, as the leader of Fortune Media, you obviously have unprecedented access to the C-suite of, you know, not just the Fortune 5000, but companies of all, all different sizes and mission. What would you say is, what, what, what positive is happening in the C-suite that maybe the vast yeah. majority of, the, of their employees don't realize? There's kind of like this, this, this us versus them mentality. I think there's been some uh, 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 chasms that have been crossed since uh, the pandemic and George Floyd and Black Lives Matter and DEI initiatives. What are you, what are you encouraged about yeah. in the C-suite? Yeah, here's, here's what I think most people don't understand about what's going on here. And that is that the way companies create value has really changed pretty profoundly over the course of the last few decades. There was a study done recently that looked at the balance sheets of the Fortune 500 companies, uh, both 50 years ago in the 1970s and then again today. And it asked the question, where is the value coming from? And if you do that in the 1970s, look at the balance sheets of the companies and say, where is the value coming from? The answer is more than 80% of that value comes came from physical stuff. If you had the plants, if you had the equipment, if you had the inventory on your shelves or the oil in the ground, if you had physical stuff, you could create business value. And so in that kind of a world, it kind of made sense that your primary focus would be on your shareholders because they were the people who provided you the capital, which enabled you to buy the stuff. Pretty direct connection. If you do that same exercise today, what you find is more than 85% of the value on the books of the Fortune 500 is intangibles. It's not physical stuff. It's uh, intellectual property. It's the brand connection with consumers. It's things that, frankly, are much more rooted in people, uh, employees, customers, and so forth. And so that dramatic change in the way value is created has inevitably caused companies to focus more on the needs of people. They're becoming more human. I mean, I have a colleague, Jeff Colvin, who wrote a, a book yeah. called Humans Are... Yeah. yeah, he's a good man. He wrote a book called Humans Are Overrated uh, a few years back. And it pointed out that we really spent most of the 20th century trying to make people into better machines, right? That's what scientific management was all about. You know, how, how human beings can fit into the manufacturing production line in a way that's efficient and can lead to the uh, most efficient productions of, uh, of goods and services. Uh, and what we're seeing today is a much greater focus on human values. The machines are pretty much taking care of themselves, right? But it's, it's how do you engage human beings uh, so that your employees are the best, bring their best to the table? How do you engage your customers so that they have this loyalty to you that continues over time? I think all of those human values are what has changed in business, and I'm not sure that's fully understood. Alan, speaking of machines, let's talk about uh, machine learning and AI. You've written about it prolifically. Yeah. This morning I was on a call with a client of mine, Joan London, the former you know, co-anchor of Good Morning America and a prolific writer. She actually is very involved in some ventures around AI as it comes to medical advice. They have an avatar, uh, you know, a, a collection of medical companies has invested in a, in a concerted effort, and Joan is a spokesperson, 
And so now pretty soon you can go on to their site and get medical advice or at least direction from Joan as an advocate for women's health care and breast cancer and things like that. Yeah. And so she talked about the responsible way in which AI is working in that arena. Franklin Covey, of course, has a very strong opinion about our intellectual property being just that, right? Our intellectual property and not having our own authors write their books by, by virtue of AI. Uh, we have a pretty strong, I think, ethical standard on that. What would you say you'd like all of the listeners and, know, and, and viewers to know about how AI is being used responsibly and maybe even the slippery slope of irresponsibility? Yeah, I like the way you put the question because technology uh, is neither good nor bad, right? Uh, it can be used. Almost every technology revolution from fire onward has given us tools that can be used for good and for bad. Uh, and, and, and so I wouldn't focus too much on the value inherent in the technology. Uh, but there is no question that this latest round, uh, the AI, uh, has both phenomenal positive implications and some pretty serious negative implications that have to be wrestled with by society. And the positive implications you already pointed to, I think companies are looking at this as a, a technology that can make them not just far more efficient, but actually allow them to provide value to people in, in new ways. And I'm glad you mentioned uh, medical, because what I hear about the changes that could be in store for the biopharma research, for instance, are huge. Just make it much faster, much easier to create more personalized medicines that can deal with medical problems. So, so many good things out there uh, that can happen, but there's some very disturbing pieces as well. Uh, this tendency to, towards hallucination, uh, which is just another way, as far as I can tell, another way of saying that sometimes uh, generative AI just makes things up, uh, uh, has the potential to undermine the fact base of our society even more than it's already been undermined. And you made a very good uh, uh, reference just a minute ago about um, intellectual property. Uh, you know, who, who does the intellectual property belong to that these uh, AI uh, engines are trained on? And if you say, uh, 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 paint me a picture in the style of a famous artist or write me or sing me a song in the style of Taylor Swift, uh, what rights do the artist or Taylor Swift have to uh, what the AI creates. Those are all issues that are going to have to be sorted out, and they're not simple issues. So I, I think we are in uh, for a, a very exciting decade because of these technologies, but I think there's some uh, profound dangers that are going to have to be wrestled with. And let's talk about the responsibility companies have in maybe the social fabric of society. You touched on this earlier. I was born in the 60s, raised in the 70s, and I can remember seeing my first ever marketing campaign in the 80s for Benetton. They were actually quite progressive, right? You had you know, white and black hands being held as couples. You sometimes even had same-sex couples in you know, relationships. I mean, Benetton was enormously progressive. Then you had Patagonia that had a social conscience and taking you know, strong points of view. And this is you know, 40 years ago. And now yeah. it seems quite common that organizations are either being lured into or forced to or deciding to weigh in on social positions because they respect their workforce. 
They respect the diversity of their yeah. customer base, but it's a slippery slope. What was going on in Florida with Disney, and there's countless examples. What advice would you give to, to the C-suite, to any public company or private company for that matter, that has all these potentially opposing constituencies politically and economically and socially? You hope they aren't opposing, but they are. How do you navigate yeah. that slippery slope of brand equity? I mean, look at, look at Anheuser-Busch and what happened with their yeah. recent campaign. I mean, their earnings are, you know, are, are concerning because of the campaign they held with the transgender influencer. Yeah, I, I, it's a great question, Scott. Look, uh, first of all, you have to separate what companies say from what companies do. And most of my book is really focused on what they are doing. For instance, all the companies like Walmart and General Motors that have taken really substantial actions to try and help head off, uh, to change the pattern of carbon emissions and help head off climate change. So, so put that under the what companies do category. The, the most interesting thing about the last decade is this explosion in, in what companies say uh, you know, a decade ago, I can tell you as a journalist, getting any CEO to talk about any controversial social issue was a losing proposition. They were under their desk, said, if it doesn't directly affect my bottom line, I'm not going to comment on it. And that started to change, I would say, in around 2014, when uh, Indiana passed a religious liberties law uh, that was viewed as discriminatory towards the LGBTQ community. And Mark Benioff of Salesforce, based in California, that said, we won't do business in uh, in Indiana if this is the case. And then there was a, a similar uh, issue in North Carolina, where the state passed a law restricting transgender access to public bathrooms. And many of the people... Uh, uh, well, Bank of America, the, the notable example, biggest employer in the state, said, no, you can't do this. Uh, so, and, and after that, I think probably it peaked with the George Floyd killing, where virtually every CEO uh, uh, felt the need to speak out. And, and to understand how dramatically that had changed, that was only, what, seven or eight years after a similar event in Ferguson, Missouri, where no CEO spoke out. So over the course of seven, eight years, there was a dramatic change in uh, how CEOs responded to these things. And then you had the political pushback. You had you referred to the uh, Disney example in Florida, uh, uh, several other, uh, at the end, Hester Bush example, I mean, they talked about a drop in sales of as much as 20% because of the pushback against their marketing campaign with the transgender activists. And so, uh, and, and, and as a result, everyone has become more cautious. Bottom line, I don't think we're going back to where we were 10 years ago. I was just looking this morning at a survey that shows that something like 82% of consumers expect companies to take public positions on social issues. This is part of the humanization of corporations. People want, this is why I say my book was the search for the soul of business. People want business to have a soul. They want it to stand for things. They want it to have values that they're willing to defend. But I think what has to happen now is it's a new muscle that companies have to develop. They got to do the work to figure out, okay, what really do we stand for? What are our values? What are the things where we do feel we have to speak out? And let's focus on those, but not make, make the net too large. We don't have to speak out on everything. We can't speak out on everything, even our own 
Uh, stakeholders are divided on many of these issues. Let's figure out what, as a company and a, as a brand, is important to us and focus on those things and not the rest. And so uh, I, I think what you're seeing now is kind of a smarter approach that uh, reflects a new process and some new muscle inside the companies to figure out what their core values are. I, to me, that's a good thing. Alan, let's talk about capitalism. Uh, I'm interested to know what you think that even means in 2024. You shared an interesting story in the book about how um, when Hillary Clinton almost lost the Democratic nomination to Bernie Sanders, she was quoted as saying, you know, she could barely even associate with capitalism or being viewed as a capitalist because it might even have lost her the nomination. I may have quoted that wrong. It seems like a sea change has happened in America with a new generation coming into the workforce, a generation that has a different um, set of values that is now post-pandemic. All of us have a different set of values post-pandemic. Where is capitalism headed post-2023? Well, look, let's let's start with the basics. Uh, uh, I am a committed capitalist, and I think capitalism has earned its place in the world. I mean, if you look at the the billion plus people who have been lifted out of poverty over the course of the last two, three decades, largely because capitalism won the Cold War uh, and, and countries, particularly China, embraced market economics and saw a huge rise in the well, welfare and well-being of their people as a result. And I think history is filled with examples like that. We have not come up with any system that works better at raising human welfare than the capitalist system. Um, but, but, that, but, but that doesn't mean that it can't be improved. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't focus on its shortcomings. Uh, a lot of what I write about in the book, I think grew out of the great financial crisis, which was a dramatic failing of the market economy uh, on a large scale with many human uh, consequences. And so, uh, uh, focusing on how do we make capitalism work better for people, uh, to me, is not only a valid exercise, but a necessary exercise. It's something we have to do. And that's what and that's what these companies uh, that I write about are focused on. You dedicate a whole chapter in the book about the purpose of business. Remind us from the interesting seat you sit in as the the head of the Fortune Media enterprise, your three decades as a, 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 an editor and a journalist at Wall Street Journal. You, you sat on the Pew Charitable Research Group, and, and you have a broad, you've proven yourself to be a capitalist with a conscience. I think there's no debate about that. What's the purpose of business? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. I mean, this debate uh, in my lifetime kind of starts with a a uh, bold uh, piece that Milton Friedman published in the New York Times in the 1970s, where he said the social responsibility of business is to make a profit for its shareholders. Now, it was a little more complicated than that. It said, obviously, you should obey the law. You should, uh, uh, you know, not commit fraud, but basically focus on making a profit for shareholders. And, and, uh, I think what most business leaders are saying today is that's a little too narrow, and it ignores the fact that there's a big disconnect between what you would do to help shareholders in the short term 
and what you would do to help them in the long term. Anybody who has ever worked in the C-suite of a large corporation could tell you there are hundreds, maybe thousands of things you can do on a quarterly basis that will increase the profits you report to shareholders, but hurt society in countless ways. You know, cut back on training your employees, uh, bespoil the environment, uh, uh, cut back on safety provisions in your product. Uh, those those things may all make you money for shareholders in the short term, but in the long term, they can come back and bite you. And so part of what I think is going on here is a recognition that that over the long term, the interests of the corporation and the interests of shareholders and the interests of society begin to come together. Uh, and, and I think that's that is a a a, a useful area to focus on and an important area to focus on. Ellen, I'm by no means a fatalist. I'm not a survivalist. I don't have a, a, a room of my home where I'm hoarding flour. But, you know, you look at the state of the world and it is, it is a precarious time. I mean, we're taping this on a day where, you know, some large portion of the, of the island of Maui has been devastated by fires that have been fueled by, you know, uh, uh, generational winds from hurricanes. This morning, we announced, or, or you know, North Korea announced they'd fired their top general, and they've, you know, quote, preparing for war. I mean, you kind of set your clock to it, right? You've got China and Russia that are debating about the peace resolution, Ukraine. I mean, we could go through hundreds of conflagrations, what's going on in Niger, and it's just, it, it, it's a tough time to be alive in many ways. What are you excited about? What are you encouraged about? What advice would you give people to say in the midst of all this drama and trauma and climate change and all that we have going on, where should people place their confidence? Where should people be buoyed emotionally, mentally, maybe even spiritually by? Yeah, Scott, look, the reason that I wrote to Mars Capitalist is, is precisely because I was excited about what was going on. Let's just take one of the things you talked about. Uh, uh, we're seeing, uh, you know, I think every day, more of the potential results of, of climate change. I'm not a climate scientist. These things are not direct. They're not absolute. But I think anybody who's paying attention recognizes something is going on here. And the, the science, while it may not be 100% absolute, is pretty clear that uh, that there is a warming going on, B humans are contributing to it, and C carbon emissions uh, has or greenhouse gas emissions has something to do with it. That's pretty scary. But what I find exciting is if you look at what's happened in corporations over the last two or three years to address that, uh, you've had um, a tripling of the number of Fortune 500 companies who've made net zero commitments. Now you can say making a commitment about 2050 is is not of any value. But then you look at the real stuff that's going on. Uh, in, in January of 2021, when Mary Barra said that uh, General Motors was only going to make electric vehicles starting in 2035, that was a big deal because that means every investment they make now has to be geared towards that 2035 uh, reality. When Walmart came out and said, uh, we're going out to 4,000 of our suppliers and asking them to help us uh, retool their companies to get a gigaton of emissions out of the environment. That was a big deal, probably bigger than any regulatory scheme that we've enacted 
Um, so what I'm optimistic about is the fact that the problem solvers who tend to end up running large corporations are focused on these big social problems and trying to do something about it. I think that's a good thing. I don't really understand people who say that's a bad thing. Uh, uh, society has some big problems. Frankly, our government doesn't work very well today at solving those problems. And so thank God business leaders are stepping up and saying, well, let's figure out how much of this we can do. Alan, feels like your book, Tomorrow's Capitalist, should be required reading for every MBA graduate in the nation, for that matter, in the world. It's, a, it's an extraordinary reminder of what's important and why we're here all working together. I'd, I'd like to end our time talking about the Fortune family. Uh, remind yeah. everybody what's part of the Fortune Media Company and what's on the horizon that you're excited about in the world of Fortune. Sure. Well, Fortune's been around now for uh, uh, 93 years. It was created by Henry Luce in, in 1930. And for most of its life, it was a magazine and it was part of a group of magazines uh, that were owned by Time Warner and then Time Inc. What's happened in the last four years is we, uh, uh, Time Inc. was sold off to Meredith. Meredith sold off Fortune to an investor in Thailand. So we're now an independent company. And the magazine has, has become a much smaller part of our total business. Uh, we do a lot of convening, executive conferences, uh, uh, more than 20 of them a year in person, probably 100 of them virtually. So bringing executives together to share best practices the way we did at the Vatican in December of 2016 is a core part of our business. We're far more digital than we used to be. Uh, uh, most of our audience, uh, most of our advertising is on uh, digital products, both our website, a variety of emails we run. The magazine is still there and we love it and hope it'll be around for a long, long time, but it's a small part of our total business. Remind our listeners and viewers how they can stay in touch with you because you host a podcast, you have a newsletter. Would you, re at, my, at my invitation, would you talk about those two um, vehicles sure. to how people can, can stay in touch with you? Sure. I, I write a, uh, a daily newsletter that's my attempt to sort of let people know what I'm thinking about, what's going on at Fortune. And it's free, so it doesn't cost you anything. Uh, it's, uh, you can sign up at uh, uh, fortune.com backslash newsletters. Uh, it's called The CEO Daily, and I, I urge you to sign up for that. That's easy. And same with the podcast. The podcast is weekly. We've been going for three years now. We have interviewed Many of the top, I think our very first interview was with Satya Nadella at Microsoft, but we've interviewed most of the top leaders of large companies, a lot of it around the same themes that I address in my book, Tomorrow's Capitalist. And again, doesn't cost you anything. So you can go to Apple, Spotify, search for Leadership Next. That's the name of the podcast and, and follow along. Uh, the more, the better. I think I, you you asked me a minute ago what what gets me excited, what makes me optimistic. I think this change in business is a good thing that we should all be excited about. It's good for the world. Alan, you wrote the book Tomorrow's Capitalist for who and why? I wrote it for anyone who cares about the world of business because I thought what was going on was either misunderstood or not fully recognized. Um, and and it and it was you know it got caught up in the divisions in our society. On one side, you had 
uh, uh, people on the left who kind of rolled their eyes and said, oh, yeah, right, this is just greenwashing or purpose-washing companies trying to cover up all their evil deeds by uh, talking about these things. And then on the other side, you had uh, ideologues who said, oh, this is horrible. Why are companies trying to do good in the world? They should just focus on making profits for their shareholders like Milton Friedman told them to. And, and, and so I thought it was important to cut through the polarized debate and look at what people were really saying and try and understand why they were saying it and and how much of it was real. And, and that's what tomorrow's capitalist uh, uh, attempts to do. Alan Murray, you serve as the CEO of Fortune Media, lifelong journalist and contributor to the conscience of business. Your book is Tomorrow's Capitalist, My Search for the Soul of Business. It has definitely made me think deeper about my role as an entrepreneur, my role as an ambassador for Franklin Covey, and how I also am raising our three sons that are 8, 11, and 13 to make uh, a greater contribution to their future world. You're a class act, sir. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much, Scott. Great to be with you. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. Mm -hmm.